Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Derek O. Hanley, author of Photographs from the Frontline, A Year on the Street of Alameda County. Tell us about who you are. How are you doing today? I'm doing well today, Deirdre, and it's a pleasure to speak with you, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's really an honor. Um, I'm doing well. It's St. Patrick's Day. My birthday is tomorrow. Looking to have a good weekend, so I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming for the program. I want us to start by uh, having you tell the audience who you are and what led you to this project. Sure. So I, you know, Right after high school, I joined the military in 2000, uh, joined the U.S. Air Force, and became a paramedic, and did four years uh, working at the Air Force Level 1 Trauma Center in the Emergency Department. And then when I finished my tour, I got out and I worked as a civilian paramedic um, on the streets in upstate New York for a couple of years. And then I'll be honest, Deirdre, I burnt out on being a paramedic and being a first responder because it's such a stressful position. Um, and you have to see, you know, horrible things that most human beings are never exposed to. So I got burnt out on it, had some, you know, mental health struggles and kind of started my healing journey from that point. And then a little while later, I moved out to California. I was there to help, uh, start a friend, start a video and photography production business. So I was there for a couple of years working with him, helped him build it up, sold off my share and then started my own uh, business. Fast forward to 2020, I got a behind-the-scenes research position with Alameda County EMS, which is in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area, and wanted to get out in the field and just kind of see what what it's like to be a paramedic in this county, because each county is different, both geographically and demographically. Um, so kind of wanted to see what the challenges were for the medics on the streets and, you know, get, get myself out in the field again and, and see what it was like. And, you know, because of my photography background and my background as a medic in the military and stuff, I 
decided to just bring my camera out to try and capture shots of the medics in action because, you know, most people, even the spouse or, you know, children of someone who's a paramedic don't really understand what they do every day in their job. You know, they know they're in the ambulance, but they don't really know much more. So I was kind of getting some photos just for the providers to be able to give to their own family and show, hey, look what daddy does, you know, on a daily basis. Um, and then, as you well know, Deirdre, March 2020, the pandemic struck, um, and then the project kind of took on a whole different tenor at that point. Um, and that's kind of where we pick up um, with the book is beginning of 2020, and then we see the kind of the, the arc of the pandemic through the prism of the paramedics who are on the streets every day of the crisis. February 2020, you met Jim and Gina. Tell us about that meeting and the pictures that were behind the meeting. Yeah, that was my, Jim and Gina were the first crew that I rode along with where I um, brought my camera. I'd been out in the field a couple times before that with some providers, but then, it, like I said, it dawned on me to, hey, why not bring your camera, see what you can capture. Uh, when I first showed up to the ambulance station, um, Jim, who's been a paramedic for probably 30 years or more um, in the county, extremely experienced, um, super um, awesome medic. When I showed up, he wasn't expecting me, so he was a little bit gruff. You know, as, as medics can be, they can have kind of a, a gruff exterior uh, because of all the stuff that they have to see and do. So he was like, what are you doing here? Who are you? And so, you know, when I told him I, I served, you know, two tours in the medic as a military, in the military as a medic, and, you know, I have a, I'm a paramedic myself and whatnot, I think that helped to kind of drop his guard. And, you know, we, we started talking, and uh, by the end, of the end of the shift, we were all, you know, good friends and were telling great stories and stuff. So... Jim and Gina were great. They took such good care of me. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting thing to have a ride along with you when you're um, out in the field on an ambulance, and it can be awkward or it can be fun. And you know, they made it a lot of fun. And one of the first calls we had right out the gate was for an elderly gentleman who you know had fallen and sustained some pretty pretty serious trauma um, in the street. And that's where the book starts right off. Is you know. Image one is welcome to <laughs> welcome to being a first responder. You know, you see the yeah the fire department who was there first. You know, the ambulance crew is there doing their trauma assessment. You know, you can see blood in the street, all the equipment. It's a very chaotic environment, but when you're there and you're witnessing it, it's really almost like a dance. There's almost a choreography to how to manage an emergency. And when you're watching it, it's really a beautiful thing to to see these highly trained providers in action, all working together with the common goal of trying to help this person who's in need. So Jim and Gina was my first vignette into this world and the first kind of glimpse that the, the readers will get of what it's like to be a paramedic. Jim was checking the lungs out of the patient and uploading the patient into the hospital. Um, again, do you think the, the public really realizes what... Uh, people who work in the first responding area go through? I think they may have some sense, but the, the depth of the emotional impact, um, the physical impact of working with people who are in critical conditions, I don't think they do. And you know what, Deirdre, even I had forgotten about the pressure that a paramedic experiences, you know, when they're dealing with a patient. I mean, imagine this, you're... <clears throat> You show up to somewhere you've never been before. There's someone who you don't know who's laying down on the street. Maybe they're unconscious. Maybe they're in critical condition. You know, you have to do what you can on scene to get them stabilized. 
You load them up in the back of the ambulance. And now when those doors close, Deirdre, it's just you. You're the only person in the back of that box who is charged with keeping this person alive, saving their life, or doing what you can to render aid. And you're doing essentially what the emergency department will do when they get to the hospital, except in the ER, you have 10 people, you have all the room, you have light, you have space to work, you have all the equipment that you could ever ask for. Um, so as a paramedic, you are working with limited time, limited space, limited equipment, um, limited manpower, and all the pressure for keeping this person alive or saying, saving their life is squarely on your shoulders. And you're doing all this by yourself in the back of a moving vehicle. So the pressure that a paramedic experiences uh, once those doors close and that's, you know, you're, you're essentially locked in until you get to that hospital, however far that may be, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 45 minutes, depending on where you work. So that's one of the hardest things for me to communicate, Deirdre, um, and for people to understand is just the pressure that these folks feel. Um, and then add to that the traumatic exposures that these folks have to face, you know, on an almost daily basis. I mean, I saw a report that, you know, the average person, average, you know, civilian sees has maybe two or three critical incidents or, you know, big traumatic exposures in their lifetime. Contrast that with a first responder who's been working on the streets for 20 years could have a cumulative 700 or more critical incidents or traumatic exposures. So um, that's what I'm hoping with the photos from the front lines will show is some of the pressures that these folks are under and, and some of the horrible things that they have to see, which can't be unseen. Absolutely. And during the pandemic, they had to be really aware of making sure everything was clean. I think the picture of the ambulance says a lot. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was... You know, I, I use military vernacular intentionally in the book to tie the two the two professions of medic and military together in people's minds because, like I said, other than you know a soldier who's been in combat, I'm not really sure of any other profession where you're going to have that high of a level of traumatic exposures as a first responder or um, you know a paramedic does. Now, add to that, Deirdre, like you're saying, the pandemic. So now we, you know, car accidents are still happening, gunshots are still happening, heart attacks and strokes. These things are all still happening as the pandemic is raging. However, now we have to add on to that the load on the 911 system from all the respiratory cases that are coming up from the virus and its infection and whatnot. Um, and that was what was kind of unique about this battlefront, if you will, if I can call it that. Uh, was that, you know, not only is your life at stake, but the lives of all those who are closest to you, your, your family, your friends, anyone who's in your, you know, quote, bubble, as we called it when we were in the pandemic, you have the potential to bring this home to them. And to me, that was the scariest part about going out in the field and capturing this stuff was not that I was worried about getting sick, but I was worried about getting my wife sick or having something bad happen to her or, you know, our close friends because of, something I brought home from being on the job. So, you know, think about all the all the stuff we just talked about with trauma and, you know, pressure and stress and add to that now this unseen enemy that um, is almost impossible to fight, but it adds so much more to the job than it already was. You know, you only have to think about an N95 mask. You have to think about everything that you touch. You have to wipe down the pens, the, the computers, the every surface in the back of the ambulance. You have to decontaminate, you know, your coat, your clothes, uh, everything that's been on, and this is every single call, 
So, you know, you're making an already stressful and difficult job exponentially more stressful and difficult. And I'm sure you remember, Deirdre, in the beginning of the pandemic, we really didn't really have much information as far as how it was transmitted, how deadly it was. Um, so there's this kind of ever ballooning um, ocean of uncertainty, which is now hanging over the medic's head that they have to deal with. Um, and so, again, trying to communicate how how hard, how difficult this job became during this this critical period is is almost hard for me to do. And I think the pictures in photos from the front lines do a better job at communicating these this you know this state and the emotions that these folks were feeling better than I ever could trying to with words. I think you're right because the picture of uh, the paramedic George, he had to complete a care report, and you showed him there uh, typing on the computer. What, what was that like showing how they had to get those reports out too? Yeah, that's that's another aspect of the job that people don't kind of think about is the whole documentation aspect. You know, when you're handing the patient off to the emergency department, you're handing them off to, you know, potentially the emergency physicians, trauma surgeons, you know, the whole the whole host of the emergency team that comes with, you know, showing up to an emergency room. So documentation is also a big thing that people need to think about with this too. And, you know, now we have the talking, speaking on the pandemic angle. Now we have the thing like close contacts, like who have you been in contact with, you know, and, you know, tracking and tracing all became, you know, a lot more important when this came about. Um, and George was actually one of the first people that I did a ride along with before I started bringing my camera out. And he is a fantastic medic, great guy, super funny, um, fun guy to be around, and also took phenomenal care of me when I was out in the field with him. So I was glad I was able to capture a shot of him um, kind of at ease and, you know, um, just working on his paperwork. It It wasn't a great action shot, but I think it was good, as you're saying, to kind of show another detail of this job that don't, that most people don't, um, see or, or know much about, which is the whole documentation aspect. Um, and that can be kind of stressful for people too, because, you know, you're, you just finished this, this huge emergency. There's, you have all this huge adrenaline that's coursing through your system. And, you know, when you're, after you finish a call, you need a little bit of time to just kind of allow that stress cycle to complete, as they say, in you know, psychology. And, you know, after your, after a call, I usually don't, you don't see too many pictures of me of, of para- paramedics after the call because I, that's kind of a sacred space for them to just kind of unwind and process what they've seen and kind of get themselves mentally prepared for the next call. Because as soon as you finish that paperwork, you're back in the ambulance and you're back in the 911 system and you're on your way to the next call. Um, one of the things that's that's troubling now is that, you know, I'm sure you can imagine, Deirdre, that the people are, are leaving the emergency services at an alarming rate because of the stress and because of the added, you know, danger to themselves and their family and things like that. So the 911 system is moving towards where there's less paramedics in ambulances, which means longer response times, which means less time in between calls to be able to, you know, process and take catch your breath and things like that. So um, as time is going on, the job is becoming harder and harder for these folks because they're having to do more with less. Um, and that's another kind of unseen thing in the book that is a great point to bring up um, because it, it's going to reach the point of crisis at some point. 
Um, and, you know, the people who are going to be hit the hardest are these paramedics that you're seeing here who are continuing to do this job despite all the risks and despite, you know, all the, all the, the consequences to them personally. Well, they had to have some fun, too. And you showed how they had some fun even during these difficult times. Tell us about those pictures. Absolutely. Yeah, you see some shots. I get, I, I'm, again, I think because I was a paramedic, or I'm a paramedic, and, you know, because of my background as a military medic, I think that really helped to drop people's guards when I was around. I think if it was just a random photographer off the street who was trying to hang around, and get pictures, they may not have gotten some of the intimate shots that I was able to capture in photos from the front lines. And it's not all doom and gloom. You know, there's there's a lot of shots of folks smiling and laughing and messing around at the station and, you know, trying to cut loose a little bit. And that's a crucial aspect, I think, of being a first responder and working in emergency services, Deirdre, is you have to have a good sense of humor. I think the folks who are able to stay in this career field the longest are the ones who are able to laugh because, you know, when you, when you have a critical incident or you have a big trauma or something like that, um, you know, when you're, when your emotions are that high and raw, you kind of have two options, laugh or cry. Um, and I'll be honest, a lot of the times the, you don't have a choice. The choice is made for you and it's to cry. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, after I got done with a shift as a paramedic in the field and, you know, got in my car and was driving home and finally, you know, felt safe and was off duty. And, you know, I basically would spend the entire car ride uh, driving home crying just because of some of the the horrible, you know, sad things that I had to see and deal with in that 12 hour shift. And so, you know, a lot of times because of what you see, you know, it's, it's going to have a huge emotional toll on you. And, you know, you're going to be you may be crying you know, several times in your 12 hour shift because of what you had to witness. And, you know, on the flip side of that, <clears throat> you can find something funny in pretty much anything that happens in this world. And medics are really good. They have a dark sense of humor. A lot of times when they're telling jokes or messing around, people who are civilians or haven't done this job don't understand it or think they're a little crude and whatnot. But that's kind of the attitude you have to have, I think, in order to have longevity in this career field. You have to be able to laugh. You have to be able to cut loose. You have to be able to, you know, not take life so seriously because if you do, you're going to be suffering and you're going to be crying a lot and you're going to be holding all this stuff. So it's good. It's healthy to let it out. It's good to talk about things. Um, and, you know, I, I could talk for hours about <laughs> the healing journey that I've been on as far as therapy and, you know, things like that, which I think are crucial if you're going to, you know, have a healthy work-life balance trying to do this job. but yeah, I think I'm glad I was able to capture a lot of that, a lot of those smiling faces and a lot of those kind of cutting loose and having fun moments because I think it helps to humanize these folks and show that, hey, these are, these are folks just like you and me who have, you know, thoughts, feelings, emotions, um, and feel pain. The cupcakes. I thought that was a really good picture. That was great. You know, during, uh, during the pandemic, my wife was actually in school to be a pastry chef. And so... Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a bad baker myself too, Deirdre, if I don't mind tooting myself, tooting my own horn, but, um, we would bring, try to bring some cookies or something like that to give to the crews because, you know, when you, when you leave the ambulance station, you're out on the streets for 12 hours straight. And so you're either, you're only either eating what you brought or fast food or, you know, restaurants, things like that. I mean, you don't have much time to be able to, to grab food and eat when you're out there on the streets because emergencies are happening, you know, around the clock. So you know, to, to be out there and, you know, to be 
seeing all this horrible stuff and whatnot to, to get something homemade, home baked can just make your day. And, you know, when I would pull out the cookies or the cupcakes, you wouldn't believe the the smiles that would come out when, you know, they were, they were chowing down and stuff like that. And it was cool to capture some of those moments because, um, you know, again, it's just like little, little humanizing moments, little glimpses into these folks' lives and, you know, seeing someone enjoy a cupcake can make you smile. And I'm glad that I was able to capture those moments and show that because it's little things like that, I think, to help to, to help people relate to these folks and not just be a person in uniform or a person who drives the ambulance, but a human being who has to see and experience all this stuff. Absolutely, Derek. Now, you, you brought some pictures about the tent, the outbreak tent. Uh, tell us about that tent. That was one of the eeriest moments for me um, at the start of the pandemic because, you know, <clears throat> as a paramedic and, you know, emergency worker, we train for mass casualty incidents. And, you know, I was, <clears throat> I was an instructor for EMTs for the last 10 years or so. And, you know, we talk about outbreaks and pandemics and, you know, biological warfare and all the things that you need to be prepared for if you're going to be a first responder and an EMT or a paramedic. So <clears throat> I happened to be out in the field capturing again before, before the pandemic really started to flare up, just capturing shots of the medics. And we were at the, one of the hospitals in Oakland and while we were there dropping off a patient, the maintenance crew and the, the technicians and whatnot from the hospital were out there in the ambulance bay, which usually is empty. It's usually just, you know, empty parking lot for the ambulances to be able to pull in and offload their patients and whatnot. So there's this huge crowd out there, people setting stuff up. And um, I was like, hey, what's going on? And they're telling me they're setting up this tent to be able to uh, take patients who would be um, probable or presumptive having covid so that they wouldn't have to go into the emergency department um, and make everyone else sick. Because, again, early on, we didn't really know too much about how it was spread or whatnot. So they set up these outbreak tents to be able to house patients. Because, you know, if you think about it, you have an emergency room with maybe 30, 50 patients in there. They could be suffering from a car accident. They could be having a heart attack. You know, there's a, there's a wide variety of emergencies that come into an ER every day. Um, so you you know, you don't want to have someone who's already having a heart attack to then get COVID. So the outbreak tent was a way to um, hopefully keep people who were actively sick and could potentially spread the virus out of the main emergency department um, because things are kind of close quarters in there and could potentially uh, be a, a vector for spreading the virus. So um, you see the outbreak tents come up uh, a couple times in photos from the front lines. Most of the most of the major hospitals in the Bay Area had them set up, um, and they even went so far as to um, they would actually have an X-ray machine out there in the outbreak tent. They had a mini pharmacy. They had all the monitors and vital signs things that you would need. Basically, they had a mini emergency room set up out there in the outbreak tents to deal with the influx of COVID patients to hopefully keep. Um, from bringing the virus into the main ER and making other people sick. So that was something that I've never seen before, something I only talked about with my students. Uh, and when I saw that coming out, that kind of, that, that kind of turned my stomach a little bit and said, uh-oh, like this could actually be really serious. And it turned out to be. You also had lots of uh, photographs of women who were on the front line. Tell us about Commander Heidi. Oh, Commander Heidi. Wow. She is one of the nicest human beings I've ever met in my entire life. Um, and to be, 
you know, a paramedic and being a, a tactical medic and all the amazing things that she'd done for the last 30 years to still be able to put a smile on her face and be a kind, you know, generous person, it's, it's almost mind blowing to me. And the, the chief had received several kudos for two of the women um, who were in leadership positions, Commander Heidi being one and Captain Serena being the other. And she, the chief asked if I could go and just get some shots of the of these women to to help uh, you know promote to the to the workforce and whatnot. And you know when I met Heidi, she was a little reticent to to have a photographer following her around for a little while. But again, you know once once she talked to me and learned my background, we became fast friends. And you know women are an underrepresented group, I feel, in the first responder community. And so to to be able to capture Shots of these beautiful women doing amazing work um, to me was was an honor, and it really solidified our our friendship, Commander Heidi and I, um, which turned out to come into play later on in the book when we were both at the the major protest that happened in downtown Oakland. Um, but yeah, the, showing you know some of the folks that don't get as much representation, I think, was important to me in the book. And uh, I, was, I was so happy to be able to include that section with Heidi and the other section with uh, Captain Serena to really focus on them and, and show, you know, that there are women who do this job and, and they do it with grace and poise and beauty. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On top of the pandemic, we still have violence going on. And you showed a picture of a car. Tell us about what was going on with that car. What happened? Yeah, so there was um, one of the times I was out in the field in Oakland, uh, we got uh, a call for a uh, shooting in a car that was um, down in, uh, in East Oakland. So um, in the in photos from the front lines, you're kind of able to follow the, the progression of that call as it, as it un- un- unfolds in real time. Now, with violent incidents like a shooting or something like that, it's not safe for an ambulance or paramedic crew to be to just go straight into the scene a lot of the times because there could still be weapons, um, there could still be you know people looking to do violence and whatnot. So, protocol for uh, ambulance crews is that you know if there's a potentially violent scene, the dispatchers will have them stage, meaning they'll they'll park a little ways away from where the incident is um, to make sure that law enforcement can get in there, make sure it's secure, and then they'll they'll clear the scene and allow the ambulance crews to come in. So. Um, you're able to see the ambulance staging, and then once the once the scene is cleared, we head in, and there were two shooting victims. Um, one of the victims who was more critically injured, I believe, was transported by the police to the trauma center immediately. And then um, when we got there, the second uh, victim, who wasn't as critically injured, um, was able to be extricated from the vehicle. And you get shots of the the paramedic crew working with uh, to, to try and stabilize this person's gunshot wounds. And then, you know, while they were working up the patient, I had a chance to be able to walk around the scene a little bit and see what I could see and capture. And 
um, you know, I, I looked in the in the vehicle that was shot, and my jaw dropped because you know, in the in photos from the front lines, you're able to see, you know, just how much blood comes from someone who has been shot, um, and you see the the basically the splashes of blood on the interior of the vehicle, um, and to me, that was like a really poignant graphic image, and and I really didn't want the book to be about all the gore and things like that. Um, to me, is more about focusing on the providers, but I thought it was important to show, you know, some of the bloody scenes and some of the um, stomach. You know, it's kind of stomach turning when you see that much blood, and you know, especially in contrast with a car, which is supposed to be kind of a, you know, a comfortable place to sit and and get around and stuff. So, I did. I, again, I didn't really want to to focus on the the nasty, gory bits of of the job. Um, you know, I'm sure there's other places you can find that to me it was more about focusing on the providers, but also providing some context for what they're seeing. Um, and you know, th this could be every day. You could be seeing stuff like this every day, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And this is just one example that people can see, which I think, um, pro you know, provokes a visceral reaction when you see it. Appreciation day, April, 2020. Tell us how did the responders uh, enjoy that parade. The appreciation parades were a very unique facet to come out of the pandemic. You know, we have 4th of July parades and things like that, but this was really organized by the first responders and the hospital staff for each other. You know, being a, a first responder, you know, they call it the front lines. As soon as, you know, as soon as people realized how deadly this virus was and how much of an impact it was having on the world, you know, they started calling, referring to this as the front lines and medics are on the absolute forefront. They're the tip of the spear. They're walking into people's homes who could they be COVID positive? Who knows? It's invisible. Are they exhibiting symptoms? We're not sure. So there's a whole, a whole thing of, you know, danger and, you know, self-sacrifice that's happening as a first responder. And same thing in the hospital. I mean, the hospital is where they're bringing all the sick people. You know, it's the, it's the, the collection point for everyone who's sick or dying or whatnot. So um, we know as first responders that the folks in the hospital are, you know, standing on their hind legs and fighting to, to keep the public safe and try and help everybody. And they also recognize that, you know, we're walking into folks' homes who maybe have been coughing and breathing out COVID for the last, you know, three days. Who knows? So we understand the the sacrifice and, you know, the, the service before self that is being exhibited by hospital staff and first responders. So we organized these um, appreciation parades to show mutual appreciation. And what they would do is basically make a convoy of, you know, police cars, fire engines, and, you know, ambulances and whatnot, and then kind of circle around the local hospitals to, um, and, you know, you see in, in the, in the book, most of the hospital staff would, would clear out and, you know, they were lining the streets and we were waving at each other. We we're taking pictures and, um, you know, literally showing mutual appreciation. So the folks who were involved in that, I think it was one of the few tangible ways that they were shown gratitude for the self-sacrifice that they had been doing for months and months. But the problem was, Deirdre, was that there was only so many folks who could be involved in these parades. It was a limited kind of seating thing. So I was so grateful that I could be there to capture these moments and capture these folks waving 
at, you know, waving at each other because most of the medics didn't get to see this. Most of the medics were still out running 911 calls while these parades were going on. So um, to be there to capture this stuff, I felt honored. And, you know, the book is huge. It's long. And this section is kind of, some people may say it's kind of drawn out where you're seeing all these folks waving. But I wanted to include these sections because most first responders never got to receive this gratitude and appreciation um, like I was able to see and witness. So I included a lot of the photos in the book specifically for other first responders who may be picking this up and reading it because um, they were waving at you too. And I want people to know that their service and their sacrifice did not go completely unacknowledged. Well, you covered a lot of areas that where people were in the background, like the mechanics. Tell us about those pictures. Yeah, that was another section I was really glad to have included um, because there's so many people that are behind the scenes that keep you know a 911 system functioning and one of the biggest ones is the mechanics i mean think about it deirdre you have this vehicle which is driven at you know top speed <laughs> for 12 or even 24 hours a day day after day so there's a lot of wear and tear that happens on an ambulance um, as it goes through answering emergency calls and so the mechanics are the ones who keep the wheels turning you know, if it weren't for the mechanics, you'd have breakdowns. You know, there wouldn't be enough ambulances to be able to to cover the the whole county. So these folks have extremely important jobs. And another category of folks who are completely unacknowledged. I mean, you can't <laughs> you can't work from home as an ambulance mechanic. You know, you can't be on a Zoom call as an ambulance mechanic. So these folks had to come in, you know, every day, just like the medics and the first responders had to during this whole crisis. Um, and again, there's another. Another example of service before self is these folks um, continuing to come in, work on these ambulances, make sure that they're able to to be functioning and keeping our medics safe. And it was cool to be able to hang out with them for a little bit, capture their images, and include them in this book because you know part of, part of the the mission of this book is shining light on those who I think deserve a little bit more recognition and honor and respect. And I throw the mechanics in there just as well because they have a hard job. Um, and they do it diligently, and they keep the wheels turning. Absolutely. Now, you were also able to take photographs of the George Floyd protests. Tell us about that. That was that was an incredibly heavy evening, and that was actually, I think, the genesis of of, of producing these books. That evening, after I got home and saw what images I capture, I felt compelled to, to publish them because it would just be a shame if it was, you know, just left on my hard drive and no one got to see it. Um, that night, you know, like I said, I got a, um, gotten to know Commander Heidi, and she was the team leader of the tactical EMS team, which are basically EMTs and paramedics who, when requested by the county, will assemble for potentially hazardous operations. They're the ones who, you know, they have issued body armor and helmets and protective gear and, you know, uh, gas masks, whatever they may need to, to be able to help out, you know, and things like that. So um, I heard that the, the tactical EMS team was getting deployed for the protest. Um, so I asked Commander Heidi if I could ride along and, you know, see what I could capture with my camera. And, you know, when we got to downtown Oakland, we didn't know if there was going to be 10 protesters or a thousand or, you know, whatever. Um, it turned out that about 7,500 folks showed up that evening, 
but we had no idea. But you can kind of feel there was like a there was a heaviness, there was a weight in the city. Um, you could tell folks were upset, and um, you know we we really didn't know what to expect. Um, and it turned out that you know, like I said, seventy five hundred folks showed up. Um, there was maybe. 200 cops and first responders who were on the the police lines. Um, and that was probably the most in fear of my life that I've been that night. Um, because it seemed to me that people were there to protest, but once you get a huge number of people and everyone's angry, it almost seems to, to turn into almost a mob mentality. And I was half expecting like a January 6th thing where people were going to charge the line and, you know, violence is going to erupt and whatnot. So, um, you're able to see through that sequence, kind of behind police lines, what it's like um, to look from that angle. And um, the medics were there behind police lines, uh, treating you know injured cops, injured protesters, um, other first responders, that type of a thing. Um, and you're able to see the progression of the of the protest in downtown Oakland um, throughout that evening. And also what, what happened to, what happened to go down was there's also two federal security officers who were shot uh, guarding the federal courthouse just a few blocks away from where the protest was. And because the, the EMS team was so close, uh, most of them you know, ran over on foot to be able to start rendering aid. Um, and when we got there to the scene where the, the shooting happened, the first more critical officer had been transported already by the first ambulance and the second ambulance took the second less critical officer and they were both taken to the local trauma center. And unfortunately, one of the, the more critically wounded officer succumbed to his injuries uh, on the way to the hospital. And one of the medics who was um, in the back with, uh, with this person um, that, that was uh, that deceased um, was a friend of mine. He's a, a Marine Corps combat veteran. Um, and there's a picture that you can see of him. His name is Chris. He's a paramedic on the tactical medics. And there's a picture I included of commander Heidi comforting Chris, you know, after, you know, losing this fellow first responder, which is, you know, having a person, you know, die under your care is one thing, but having it be another first responder can be all the more challenging and, and heartbreaking for, for a paramedic. So there's a shot of Chris being comforted by Heidi and you can just see, in his eyes, that kind of shell-shocked look that you see, you know, in, in pictures of military veterans and, you know, battleground photography and stuff. And in that moment, Deirdre, I was very torn whether or not to take a photo of, of Chris because it was a very, you know, private, intimate, vulnerable moment for him, you know. And I, I made the decision to take the, take the shot because I feel like that's what needs to be shown um, to folks who don't know about what a paramedic does is the aftermath, you know, the emotional toll, the psychological toll that um, can come from from witnessing someone you know or someone who's in a similar profession from you um, having a huge trauma or even even dying um, while under your care. So that whole night and that whole sequence is very emotionally provoking for me, um, having been there and captured it. And I hope that other folks feel the emotional impact when they're able to see these photos. Again, we get a sense of what's going on at that time. You show pictures of the homeless encampment. Then you talk about another social problem, fentanyl. So tell us about those pictures. Yeah, so there's, um, I got, 
you know, if you drive around downtown Oakland, there's homeless encampments all over the place. Um, and there, there's areas that are, especially in the more industrial areas, where they have set up much larger areas and tent cities and things like that. Um, and it's a big problem in the Bay Area, huge um, inequity issues. And I want to make sure I captured that too, because that's something you see a lot as a paramedic and something you're having to deal with a lot, because these folks who are in homeless encampments, you know, they don't have masks, they're not getting the vaccine. The virus can spread extremely rapidly in these kind of open air areas. And um, folks who are homeless or, you know, resource lacking are probably not going to have the best health care as well. So you have a lot of calls to homeless encampments um, for sick folks or, you know, people who have untreated medical conditions that are flaring up, things like that. So um, while, I, while I didn't respond to any particular calls that were dealing with the homeless um, while I was out in the field, I thought it was important to capture what these folks are seeing when they're driving around. And, you know, these are also kind of hotbeds for um, 911 calls and whatnot. Um, and also, at the same time, during this in the summer, we're having the wildfire season in California. So, you know, you're, you're getting the wildfire smoke, you have the virus spreading, you know, you have poor access to health care. So letting people see how other human beings have to leave, have to live, um, I think is important too, because there's a lot of folks who maybe don't live in the city, who don't understand how big the homeless problem is. Um, so to show that I thought was important to include in the book, because that's a big, big, um, a big portion of what first responders have to deal with is the, that type of a thing. So um, another interesting bit, I don't know if you if you touched on it later, but there's, I show the, what they call the CAT team, which is the community assessment team, and they go Instead of you know having an ambulance show up with two paramedics for someone who's having a behavioral health crisis, the um, instead the police can request the the CAT team, which is a, a social worker or a licensed psychologist, and an EMT who show up in a Chevy Tahoe, um, and they're able to do a psychological evaluation. They can refer them to you know outpatient um, services, or they could, if they need to, they can transport the patient in the back of the SUV to the psychiatric center or wherever they think they can receive the most appropriate care. So there's a lot of things that that kind of innovations that are happening within first responders and within paramedics um, relating to a lot of the social struggles that we see on the streets, and you know we're we're trying to innovate as best we can to get people the care they need without, you know, flooding the, the hospital system and the 911 system with calls for behavioral crisis, because it's, it's such a big problem. You know, there's the, there's the wave of, of illness coming from the virus, but there's also the other wave of mental health crisis, um, which is, you know, we're still dealing with and um, experiencing as a result of the paramedic, of the pandemic. So, I think showing some of those those kind of detailed things helps to sink in a little bit with folks as far as what people were facing, what the times were like on the streets, and kind of um, make real um, what these folks were experiencing. Night shift ride, was it different? Night shift is always a different animal. I worked nights most of my time um, working as a paramedic, and you get a lot more interesting, I'll put it, uh, calls. Um, you know, the, the kind of darker element can come out at night. And you can see that, especially if you're the one who's responding to 911 calls. And there was one, there was a couple of incidents going out at night that were particularly, um, that stand out to me. One was there was a, 
uh, a vehicle that crashed into another vehicle and caught fire, caught both vehicles on fire. Uh, by the time the the cops and the fire department got there, there was no driver on scene. You know, the driver had fled the scene, so the, they called it a driverless car, which I thought was kind of funny because um, they have those going around in San Francisco now, the autom- automated you know vehicles. So um, that was interesting, and, and that 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 scene I thought was captured well on um, camera because there's so many interesting dynamic elements. You know, you have the the fire trucks, you have the the smoke and the steam coming from the vehicle. You have the firefighters spraying water. So um, I think from a photographic standpoint, I really like going out at night because you you're able to capture a different dimension of of the job. And you know, I think at least to me, the city itself kind of becomes almost a character in photos from the front lines. You know, there's you had the background, you can see the graffiti and you know things like that. So um, Night gives me a different kind of perspective as far as capturing stuff. And then you also kind of get some of the crazier calls. Um, there, I think that's similar. That may, may have been that same shift. You know, we had a triple overdose that happened. I think it was still daytime, but it was it was when we started a night shift. Um, triple overdose. So three folks overdosing, you know, to the point of unconsciousness in the same room at the same time. Something I never heard of. That was, a, that was something new to me. It was a triple overdose. That was the first time I heard that call. But that was another one that came out on one of the night shifts I was doing that is just something that you wouldn't expect. Um, and I was able to capture that whole sequence. And, you know, you really see, you know, a dozen or so folks, dozen or so first responders, um, black, brown, you name it, all working together to try and help these folks who are overdosing and, and get them get them breathing again, get them to the hospital. And, you know, they, Narcan, which is what they use to reverse opioid overdoses, you know, we basically emptied every single, um, every single bit of Narcan that we had in the ambulance, on the fire trucks, and in the police cars to, to get these folks breathing again. And, and I'm happy to say that um, everyone who was, who was involved in that incident survived um, directly as a result of the, the work of all those first responders and folks who were, who were trying to save their lives. You know, training is so important in this position. You had some pictures of the active shooter drill. Tell us about that training. Yeah. So, you know, despite the fact that the pandemic is raging and there's you know, personnel shortages and this and that, you know, we still have to train for critical incidents that could happen. Um, and I'm not I don't watch the news often, but, you know, I, I think we're setting records for the number of you know active shooter incidents that are happening you know, across this country. And so it's a very real possibility that as a paramedic or as a first responder, you will have to show up to one of these incidents at one point during your career. And so um, it's it's not nice to think about, and it kind of puts a bad taste in your mouth when you're having to do training like this because no one ever wants to have to show up to one of these scenes. I can guarantee you that. Every medic is like, please don't let me show up to something like this because you just know it's going to be horrible to see, to have to manage and then to have to process after the fact, you know, all the things, especially if it's, you know, kids or a school or something like that, that's a complete nightmare. However, we're realists and we know that if we don't train for something like this, it's only going to make it worse um, for the, the people who were injured and whatnot. So active shoot, things like active shooter training are still happening, even though the pandemic's going on and everything is kind of unraveling in society uh, because these things are still real threats. And so... Uh, they try to make these incidents as realistic as possible um, 
because they say you have to train like you fight. And so they have things like gunshot wounds and fake blood. And, you know, they even have a, um, a wounded police dog. Um, it's, it's a mannequin, but they have that out there too, because, you know, you can see a lot of these horrible things on your way in to going to treat these patients who were shot or whatnot. And so, uh, I thought it was cool to capture the medics doing this kind of, uh, aspect of their job and this kind of aspect of training, because another thing, that's another thing that I don't think a lot of the public thinks about is the preparation that goes into, um, you know, trying to, to manage one of these incidents or trying to be prepared to, to manage them. Um, so you get to see, you know, the, the law enforcement, fire department, paramedics all working together, um, all communicating, all trying to figure out how to manage these critical incidents. Um, and it's, again, it's another amazing thing to witness when you're not part of it to see all this kind of coming together and the, the dance of everyone, um, you know, just trying their best to help as many folks as possible in the quickest amount of time and get everyone hopefully to the help they need. So I was glad I was able to capture this stuff and show it because it's, um, it's reality. It's, it's the reality that medics have to face um, and train and prepare for. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? I have a couple projects that I'm thinking about. Um, one is called War Stories, where I would like to um, get the the stories from some of the medics who have been, you know, out in the streets for a while. And I can tell you, Deirdre, that some of the stories these folks can tell will will have the hair stand up on the back of your head. Um, so I thought it might be interesting to to have them write down their stories and then present that in book form um, with images of them in the field. You know, go out and capture kind of a day in the life of this this medic um, and have images of them um, alongside their story as it's being told in texts. Um, and I think that can be a very powerful project to you know have to talk, you know, to read all these, this horrible experience that this person had to suffer through and, and continues to have to process alongside with images of them, you know, going about their day and, and again, trying to humanize, um, and let, let folks know some of the traumatic exposures that these folks have to see. Um, on the lighter side, I also, uh, my last, you know, I re recently moved up to the, uh, Portland, Oregon area from the Bay area a couple months ago. Um, but before I, I had moved, I was doing a lot of photography of musical acts around San Francisco. So I'm, I'm thinking about putting out another photo book of some of the, the music photography that I was able to capture uh, when I was at some of those uh, live venues and whatnot. So that's what I have coming up hopefully soon. Um, so stay tuned for those projects as well. We'll be looking forward to those projects again. We've been talking with the author of Photos from the Frontline, a year on the streets of Alameda County. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Deirdre. It was great speaking with you.